This is the process.ink. Hi, I'm Tom Benedek. This is The Process. I'm here at United Talent Agency with Beck Smith, literary agent and independent film agent for a multitude of clients all over the world. Thank you for joining me today, You're Beck. I'm welcome. really thrilled to be here. You work in two areas that I'm really fascinated with, screenwriting, screenplays, and also with independent directors and uh, filmmakers. So how did you, you've been here at UTA for 10 years now? Almost, in May. And you represent these, your, your clients getting them work as writers, but you also go to all the festivals, or what festivals do you go to every year on a regular basis? Um, at a minimum, I would go to Sundance in January and Cannes uh, in May and Toronto in September. But I also intermittently go to uh, South by Southwest in March, Tribeca in April, Berlin in February, sorry I forgot, and Venice in September, and uh, Telluride also in September, and then I also attend the American Film Market in November here in Los Angeles. So that's right off the bat, that's a great life. You get to go to all those festivals. Yeah, so I'm at. actually about to go to Lon the London Film Festival too, so you know, there's also other little festivals here and there that we'll sometimes attend. And you'll go if a client has a film there or you'll go just because some, something's there that you want to see or you're invited for a, a panel or something? All, all of those reasons, yeah. Okay. And before you were doing this, you were, you were a journalist. Yeah, I was actually, before I was doing this, I was head of development at Working Title Films in their very tiny Sydney office at the time, which I did for, I think, two and a half years. Prior to that, I was a journalist. I was at The Hollywood Reporter uh, at their Aussie outpost, like uh, reporting on local news and, you know, giving it to The Hollywood Reporter and also doing box office, Monday box office reports for them and attending major markets like Cannes and some of the Asian markets and, you know, reporting on the business of film. And then prior to that, I was the editor of a much more creatively minded filmmaker magazine called Inside Film or IF magazine, which is, you know, it's like a filmmaker type magazine, like filmmaker magazine here in the US. It, yeah. we, we had the Australian equivalent of that. And uh, I was the editor of that for five years. And you got into that from, you, you, you studied film in college or how did you? I actually studied journalism and uh, I did study some film subjects too. And I was working briefly as a journalist before I got the travel bug like a lot of Australians and lived and worked in various places around the world teaching English for four years in France and Thailand and Japan. And then when I got back, I kind of hadn't missed the news and felt that people had more meaningful conversations about, about topics that were, you know, meaningful to me around dinner tables talking about movies than they did talking about the news. So I felt like people emotionally connected with movies and and therefore kind of took it into their consciousness more than uh, than if they watched the news. So I felt it was a more effective tool for social change and things like that that I cared about at the time. Well, that's great. And were there films that were, for, were you movie mad as a kid or did, was there yes, a point in college? I, I really was. I mean, I had, I had one of those big life moments where actually somebody very close to me who was very young died. And I had one of those moments of 
clarity of like life is incredibly short potentially like what is it that you really love like what do you want to do and strangely just from deep within my being came movies uh, you know you've always loved them deeply and uh-huh. why have you denied yourself the chance to pursue something in that arena and I, I don't know why I had but I had and so I took that moment and I decided to just get into it any way I could so I started volunteer reporting at this tiny film magazine and then you rose up to be the editor of that magazine or that was a different yeah, ma- that was the same magazine that's great and yeah, but fun. what movies like what what are we what movies were you watching what was the as know, a kid yeah as a kid, well, I lived in a tiny country town in Australia of like 10,000 people in, you know, on the way to the outback sort of thing. So we had, it was all video players in the drive-in. So, you know, it was big, big movies. It was like E.T. and Grease and, you know, the Muppet movie and, you know, stuff, Jaws, Dr. Zhivago, you know, stuff like that. But then I remember when videos came in and my parents could could watch more adult films and whatever and... Like I remember watching Breathless and stuff like hiding behind the couch so that I could watch it because kids weren't allowed to see it and things like that. So, you know, I got exposed to some different kinds of films that way, I suppose. And and, you know, started watching like certain horror films and things like that. Um, Evil Dead and, you know, things like that that just really sparked my imagination. Some Cronenberg stuff. And it wasn't until I was I was I, I left that town and I moved to Sydney and I had two older sisters who would grab me out of boarding school and start taking me to the theater and to movies and things like that. And one of them in particular had pretty avant-garde taste and was, you know, very much in the arts community. And so she would start taking me to, I mean, I I remember she took me to see Santa Sangre, which is just like this, you know, crazy off the wall, explicit, insane, edgy, independent movie. She, She showed me Liquid Sky. She showed me, you know, movies, foreign films and so on and so forth. So my taste started getting broadened and made more specific and I started getting into the work of interesting or independent auteurs and foreign filmmakers in my late teens early 20s so that's great that's a really strong and moving foundation in film if you've had this mirror moment or this amazing who was the person who passed away it actually was that sister so oh no <laughs> okay so you, yeah. so your career is dedicated to well now to your sister sort of that that's in that's, a way, yeah. That's, you know, I'm sorry for the loss, but that's wonderful yeah. that her aesthetic has, you know, you, you sort of, you took that from her as she, mm-hmm. she that's went true. away. That's, that's great. True. That's really cool. And so now here in the here and now at, at UTA, you're, 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 the clients that you represent, you also produced a film. You produced well, Animal I, Kingdom, which yeah. was an awesome film. <laughs> that, Thank you. you know, mem- very memorable film for many people. That was a, it's a funny story. It's worth telling. So when I was working at the first magazine, Our offices were in a tiny little, you know, sort of two-story building and downstairs was our magazine and upstairs was a filmmaking collective called Blue Tongue Films. And that's actually Joel Edgerton and Nash Edgerton and Kieran Darcy-Smith and Luke Doolan, all these guys who have gone on to have very interesting careers in the film business in their own right, obviously. And then next door to us was this kind of mansion owned by Baz Luhrmann called Iona. And it's sort of the storied place where he both lived and worked when he made the the red carpet trilogy, that he, sorry, red curtain trilogy of um, Strictly Ballroom and, and uh, Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge. So Baz would invite, you know, the local filmmakers to his parties. And at that party, I met this guy, David Michaud, who at the time was sort of a, 
a young writer and was in a film lab, you know, sort of developing a script and he had no money and he was originally from Melbourne and he'd come to Sydney to be with his girlfriend who was working as a first assistant editor on Moulin Rouge. So he was a little lonely, he didn't have that, you know, friends in Sydney and he's trying to get this script made and he had no money. So, but he was very charming and funny and uh, I, I told him that he should come in and, and start working at the magazine, like just helping us out and, you know, answering phones, writing stories, writing reviews, whatever. And we could swing him a little money and he'd, he'd make some friends and it'd be fun and whatever. So he came in and started doing that. And uh, within a few months, I was just like, this guy's brilliant. He's such a good writer and he's such fun. And so I made him my associate editor. And this script, the way that funding works in Australia, if you want to get money to write a script, you apply to the government for that funding. And it's very hard to get any money out of them unless you have a producer attached. So he and I had been talking about films and what we loved. And it wasn't my aim in life to be the editor of a film magazine forever. I wanted to get into either screenwriting or producing. And, you know, I thought I came to believe that I probably had the temperament to be a producer. And so I told him that I wanted to do that. And, and he was like, well, I need a producer because I've got to get, you know, I've got to apply for this money. And it would be fun to do it with someone young and hungry like you. And like, let's let's do this together. So we started developing this screenplay. And uh, he was my associate editor. I was the editor. And so we did this magazine together, shoulder to shoulder for years. And then we also developed this screenplay together along at, at the same time, like in our spare time. And, uh, you know, Joel was a friend. Joel was attached. We approached Jackie Weaver, you know, who was like a total theatre doyen in Australia and a beloved screen actress too. She was actually suggested by the woman whose character it was based on and when David heard that idea he got very excited. And then Ben Mendelsohn was the only person he wanted to play the role that Ben ended up playing and he attached too. But it was very hard to raise the money and, you know, I was a first time producer and he was a first time director. He'd done some good shorts. So we made some shorts and and then he had to make another short to kind of express the visual kind of style that he was looking for and everything. But for different reasons, I decided to move to the US. I'd been talking to some, some more seasoned producers about executive producing the film so that they could kind of guide me and show me how they, you know, how to do it basically. And those conversations when I got offered the job at UTA became, how about you produce it? And I become the executive producer. So that's how that all came to be. And then I became David's agent in the US and then the film premiered at Sundance. I was there as his agent <laughs> as well as the executive producer of the movie and I sold the film to Sony Classics. So that's so great. So you, you functioned on all levels pretty, with that it was film. It's a pretty it's funny a, journey with that particular That's um, fantastic. film and client. Yeah. That's fantastic. And have you always been in the right place at the right time? Have you made you feel like you've created your 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 luck and fortune in terms of your journey because it seems like you've really just moved from that story in itself is so like you you nurtured this project and then you know circled it and put it on the globe I and mean, it's amazing well i mean you know david did honestly and I, but i was there with him it was fun i mean i think it is a combination of being in the right place at the right time but i also strongly believe that if you put out to the universe what it is that you want to do it somehow delivers, you know? Like, mm. I, I have been very specific in, I, I will write notes to myself, lists to myself of like, I wanna be doing this job, you know, for this company, working with these kinds of people, making these kinds of films. Like, I will, 
I don't want to say anything as hippie as visualized, but it kind of is that, you know? And I, and, and I mean, when I decided I wanted to move from being a journalist into, into script development, there's almost no jobs available for that in Australia because production companies are under-resourced and they, you know, producers pretty much just do it themselves. And so there were only a few companies. There was George Miller's company and Working Title and Baz. That they were pretty much the only companies that had enough money to pay for a development executive at that time. But I put it out into the universe that that was what I really wanted to do. And, you know, the next thing I was actually talking to Baz about a potential job researching for him. And then the next thing, you know, Working Title, which was a company I admired so much, you know, they were looking for a head of development. And I just took a week off work. I studied up about all the writers out there, read a lot of plays and screenplays and, you know, went in and did the interview and ended up landing that job. And it was, you know, it was a significant career change from being a... Journalist, journalist for the Hollywood Reporter to developing screenplays for a living for a reputable company. And, and it was just, it was a combination of putting it out there, right place, right time, and hard work. And when you, when you, when you got the job, when you first had to like meet with writers and, or, or the filmmakers about a script, were you, you felt fluent because of everything you'd done before, or was it really an adjustment to do that job? Well, in a funny way, you know, working as a magazine editor and having to pull out of story writers, journalists, you know, the best way to craft a story and the best way to structure it and the best, you know, it's a similar skill set. You know, storytelling in a funny way is storytelling and getting the best out of writers is getting the best out of writers. And so I don't know whether anything that I said <laughs> was valuable or useful or whether people thought I was a pain in the ass, but, you know, I just decided that I had good story instincts and I did a lot of study and I, you know, I'd seen an awful lot of movies and I don't know, I just decided I was as qualified as anyone. <laughs> I'm sure you are, were and I'm sure you are. I mean, I think that that, that, that is all relative. Even if someone's a teacher, even if someone's a, a, a creative a writer or director, filmmaker going in to talk about something, you know, there's, it's all in relative terms to the circumstances. So, you know. And there's, a, like, long, there's a long history and trajectory of film critics, you know, transitioning into the filmmaking side of things and, you know, either producing or directing or writing or whatever. Because I think when you review films for a living, like I did for years, you know, you, you get very fluent in the language of film and you, you know, you kind of, you're not only looking at what succeeds, you're looking at what fails. And so I remember when David and I were developing Animal Kingdom, we just always felt the pressure, you know, having been critics ourselves to not mess it up, you know? It was like, it can't just be decent. It can't be solid. It has to be exceptional, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Because we'd seen so many people, you know, try and fail because making a good film is incredibly, incredibly hard. And we just didn't want to do that, you know? It was just, it was just, and it, it is hard. It yeah, is hard. Yeah, but you did it. And I, I think being, seeing a lot of films is the most important thing. I mean, yeah. one of the most important things that one can do, reading a lot of scripts and seeing a lot of films and good ones, bad ones, that's, that's, that's what it takes to really develop the, the language and mm -hmm. understand it. So in the here and now, this, the, 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 you know, there's a, in the United States or in the world, I guess, but in the United States particularly, we have a film industry that's really in a form of collapse, transition, it's in transition from what it was or, it's, or it's, it has transformed into something different from what it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. The independent world has changed as well. The international market has changed as well. 
what do you see now in terms of where it's going? Where's where's feature storytelling going to be? Is you know is it going to is it going to bounce back from where it was relative to television? What's what are your thoughts? I think it is an interesting and exciting time for feature filmmakers, but I also think it's more challenging than it's ever been. You know, the means of technology have become very cheap now, so there's a lot of people making films. And if you're at a film, if you're at a film festival like Sundance, you know you're getting submitted, call it five thousand films to consider. You know, for as, a, as a as a film agent, going there as a as an as someone who can sell films, there are five thousand films that no, are no, that's how many get entered into, into Sundance. Sundance. I'm just okay. saying, like there's there's an awful lot yeah. of people making movies these yeah. days. So to rise to the top, I mean, you've got to have a real reason for being. It's not enough to make a good film these days, you know, it's got to be, it's got to have something very distinctive about it and some kind of aspect to it that makes people say, you know, I've got to go out and see that film. This is what I'm going to spend my Saturday night doing. This is why I'm going to pay $20 for the tickets and, you know, this much for the cab ride there and this much for my babysitter and all of a, all of a sudden I'm paying $100 just to go to a movie. There has to be a real imperative and I think that can be any number of things. To some degree, the rules haven't changed, but I just think that I see feature films slipping through the cracks a lot more than they used to because people have so many entertainment options, you know? And television is incredible, you know, especially for character-driven work. So you have to have, you know, either the, the, the filmmaking needs to be of such a level, such a level in terms of craft, performance, everything, that you know, it's just kind of undeniable and people go to see it for the filmmaker, for the filmmaking, you know, like be it Woody Allen and Kate Blanchett at the, at the height of their powers with Blue Jasmine or, you know, you, whatever you want to, you know, Wes Anderson making, you know, Fantastic Mr. Fox or something like that. The, the filmmaking has to be really exceptional. And if it's not, I think that it needs to be, you know, about something that really captures the imagination, just something that people have never seen before, never experienced before. That, that is also, you know, a way to get a lot of attention. And then I think sort of beyond that, you know, there's definitely still a role for stars, clearly, like people want to go and see movie stars. But, but you know, with the, in, with the advent of, uh, of, of video on demand, you know, even movies with stars, if they're not good, they won't command a real theatrical presence and people will go and seek those movies out you know, on VOD at home, I think. So, you know, you've, you've got to have a reason for being, either as a subject or in terms of the filmmaking. And in the last, I mean, thing, what's risen up for you? What, what did, what's, what's been out there in the last year that has been extraordinary, that fits that category? You mentioned Blue Jasmine and... Um, I think, you know, like The Lobster was an interesting film. You know, that's um, Yorgos Lanthimos, a uh, very interesting Greek auteur that, you know, has a following that he built upon from the film festival circuit. You know, his work was so original and daring and interesting and strange that it attracted high-level actors like Colin Farrell, you know, to his, to his next projects. And to make a film that is, you know, such a strange concept as that one, you know, and to put it out into the world, I think that people just like experiencing something like that, that they've never, I mean, it's just daring and original and edgy and, and confronting and strange and philosophical and deep, but also where the filmmaking is, you know, just really delivers and, and the performers and, and the performances are, are really wonderful. Hunt for the Wilder People, which is a small New Zealand film that ended up being 
the biggest film in the history of New Zealand, including Lord of the Rings. The filmmaker is Taika Waititi. He's, a, he's someone I know and think is incredible. And that film has also been doing very nicely in theatres because it's charming. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. It's kind of a father-son adventure movie, but it's just got, you know, I think people also still want to go to the movies to have that unique experience of being moved in a crowd, you know, and that movie will make you laugh and make you cry, mostly laugh. And I think that people's lives are so taxed these days, you know, people work more than they've ever worked. There's more, you know, double income families than they've ever been. People feel time poor because they're constantly at the beck and call of their devices. And so I think when they, when they, if they go to the movies, they, they want to have a good time, you know, for the most part. And they want to be transported away from their daily troubles and their worries, or they want to be shocked, or they want to be, you know, they want to be lifted out of their everyday experience. So I think that movies that can do that have a much better chance of connecting with audiences. I feel like, like kitchen sink dramas or like, you know, character driven dramas set in a very realistic milieu where there's, there's nothing distinguishing or transportative about it. It's harder for those movies to, to reach an audience than it ever has been. I mean, they have to be really, really stunning, like a Blue Jasmine, I think, to connect because people want to escape the everyday for the most part, even in the independent film world, they do. And so the genre films are more, the films that are genre films are more significant in the independent world than they'd been before. I'm calling genre films, you know, films that have those kind of elements, I guess. Does that make, yeah. s- does that make sense? Well, a- yeah, I mean, certainly like, you know, it's interesting to note that Insidious, you know, which is one big horror franchise, and The Purge, another big horror franchise, both those movies were stitched together independently. One of them by independent American finance and the other one came together out of France, actually. And, you know, so it's just interesting to note that like these teeny tiny little horror movies can actually become massive audience experiences. And they were made for very low budgets very initially. Very low budgets, yeah, under five million. As far as you know, put, putting stars or putting actors who can raise capital for movies into projects, does that work? I just, there's a movie on Netflix that I started watching that has you know Clive. It's a it's it's a kitchen drama. It seems to, I I just started watching it and finished it. It's a kitchen drama. What you just call the kitchen drama, and Clive Owen's a star. And I was trying to figure out why you know the sort of the why of this movie in a way and mm-hmm. i apologize to that. I, I have you know it, it just sort of seemed like how does it do you understand the kind of project i'm talking about or yeah. what we sort of see a the lot of kitchen sink drama yeah and how does that movie end up getting made or what you know what what ends up you know is that project where someone has a script and the actors like the script and their names are of stature enough that the movie gets financed and then just I think so. I mean, it can be a number of factors, you know, but definitely if you have a known actor, very well known, like Clive Owen, it certainly makes it a lot easier to get those movies made. But even now, I think there's, there's, for material like that, you know, intimate, realistic dramas, character-driven dramas, I think unless the filmmaker is is very well known and you just know that it's going to launch in a big way on the A-list festival circuit, there's still a very strong downward pressure on those budgets. So, but those movies get made because people, you know, they take the script to market and they say, we've got this director, Clive Owen, this is the material, and, you know, what do you think it's worth? 
and and value is determined by genre of the film, track record of the director, and track record of the actors, typically. And it's more nuanced than that. Like you know, if you if you put uh, I don't know Arnold Schwarzenegger in a very serious drama, is he going to be as meaningful as Clive Owen? Well, probably not, because Clive Owen is a respected dramatic actor. Arnold Schwarzenegger is better known as an action star and a comedy star, and people might think it's kind of weird and find it hard to take seriously to, to see Arnold Schwarzenegger in a, in a role like that. So there's all these different things that go into the analysis, but essentially sales agents, me being a domestic sales agent and then what we call foreign sales agents, will you know, tell financiers what they think the project is worth in terms of what they can sell it for in the, in the, in the marketplace either before the film gets made, meaning that it's pre-sold, or after the film gets made. And based on that, investors make their decisions and say, okay, well, this very good foreign sales agent with a, with a track record that we know and respect, that all the banks say we can rely on, thinks it's worth this. So based on that, we will back into a number that makes sense to, you know, and there's no guarantees, it's the movies. I mean, you know, the film could turn out horribly, you know, anything could happen. But, but they, they, they roll that dice based on the estimations of foreign sales agents and domestic agents. And their, in their experience, sometimes it could be worth nothing or it could be worth a lot more than what they're investing in it in their market. I mean, yeah, it could end up being worth much more or it, it, could, it could end up being a disaster. You know, it's like all you can do as a savvy investor is listen to marketplace intelligence about the value of a film and kind of handicap yourself accordingly. There's also sometimes passion plays, you know, wealthy people get excited at the idea of getting into the movies and they, you know, they, they write a check. That happens too. So those are the two main ways that things get made. And how has that diminished that 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 area of you know f financing films with names the way, the way you just described with that formula? Is that are you doing less of that now than you were five years ago, or is it just the same business as usual? We still rely on foreign sales agents, obviously, and they're a very important part of our business. Crucial. Their job has gotten a lot tougher. You know, it's 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 m because of the proliferation of movies. There's so many movies now. It's, you know, a lot of distributors in all the foreign territories will wait and see on projects that aren't undeniable. Projects that are undeniable, meaning und an undeniable director or an undeniable cast or an undeniable concept, something like that, those movies go really fast and for a lot of money and to the best buyers. Everything else struggles. And so it's hard to get any collateral in the bank to cover even part of your risk on these budgets. So that's why, I mean, I, I feel very sorry for American independent filmmakers because they don't have government subsidies and things like that that can help them get over the line, you know, because there's no cultural imperative to make movies here. So you see the downward pressure on American budgets is really rough because basically investors look to American filmmakers and say, we, we need to make every dollar back. You know, like 100% of what we invest, we, we want to make back and we need to see estimates that justify that. The truth is, you know, with a lot of, let's call it European product or Australian product or so on, you know, they don't always make their money back. But the governments value them as, you know, expressions of culture and so on. And so they'll take a little hit because, because they, they want to see their own culture reflected on the big screen.
So it's literally harder. I mean, that, that makes all the sense in the world. So there's no subsidies here. So it's really harder for American independents to do, to get their films made here, to get their films financed? Well, I mean, I think in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. It, it, it is, it is uh, there is more money available to foreign filmmakers from governments, and that's a nice thing. So you will find that, that films tend to get made on better budgets and therefore look nicer and so on. I'm not saying the films are better, but I'm just saying that they, they have a little bit more to play with in terms of resources sometimes. American uh, filmmakers have tough, low budgets often, at the, uh, certainly at the beginning of their careers. And, and I think that, you know, it's the, the big difference though is you have 380 million people or whatever you have here just so many more doors to knock on, so many more rich people to try and hit up. Like, you know, America's a massive country. So, and there's there's kind of a spirit of investment here. There's like a, you know, people in America, they'll take risks. You know, that's the culture here. It's kind mm -hmm. of, uh, it's, it's nigh impossible to raise private finance in Australia. It's really hard. It's just a very conservative investment environment. Whereas here, You'll have all these billionaires, all these millionaires who are just like, sure, you know, let's do it. And are they using Kickstarter in other countries as well, and Indiegogo and Seed I think Spark? so, yeah, I think so. It's, it's catching on slower, but yeah. And as far as like what the, you know, what you're seeing and the films you're seeing and, and at, the, at the festivals coming from the American independents, from the young filmmakers or from the new filmmakers, what, what's your sense of what's out there? I mean, what, you know, or do you see things rising up in certain areas or, you know, what's I mean, I, th I think the American filmmaking community is astonishing, you know, it's just always, you know, new voices are coming through, but, you know, also from the rest of the world, you know, there's every, it's, it's rare that I go to a festival and I'm not excited by something, you know, some new voice, some new film, but, you know, for every one of those, there's a lot of just okay projects. And how many films, your films that you get excited by seeing in a festival, do they always, I, I'm asking a question which I know, I think I know the answer to, do they reach the audience? I have, a, my own personal frustration is I feel like I don't go to all the festivals, or I go to, I don't go to, I go to very few, and I feel like there are many films which are out there which I never hear about which I don't see, which I don't find out about, and they're not on. They may not be on Netflix or Hulu. They're just they're just gone to me, and and there's like this vast missed opportunity, and there's not yeah. a crit. There isn't a critical establishment, which is vibrant to the to to me, or maybe to a large group of people who who would like to be sort of, you know. Well, I mean, I think that's. That's because of a combination of factors, you know. It has, it has become, first of all, festivals are where you get exposed to new filmmaking voices. And while those filmmakers may not get a big theatrical release off the back of a film that was a, a splash at a festival, it does help establish them so that next time around they can, they, they can attract bigger actors, they can attract more money, and possibly, you know, have a shot at making that film that really does make it out into the world to be shared with audiences in a very meaningful way. So the value of festivals is, is clearly, it's still, they still play that very important role. I think that for distributors, it's never been harder to get a film out into the universe theatrically than it is now. I mean, with all of the 
you know, sort of online chatter. It's, you know, critics' voices have been diluted somewhat, I think. People people just go, oh, what did it get on Rotten Tomatoes? You know, they, they may or may not even engage with reviews in the way that they used to. So mm. there's that. And then there's also... You know, theatre chains are fairly mercenary too because their own business is being ca- cannibalised by VOD and, 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 and online services. So, you know, if a film's not immediately working and working very well, they'll just take it out of the theatres. You know what I mean? So if you have a small film that might take a second to discover an audience to for word of mouth to build and, you know, to really, like, draw the audience in, which was the classic old platform rollout, you know? Mm-hmm. It's tough and hard to get theatre owners to be patient and to say, we need time to build this film, you know, please don't take it off screens. Because if they have some massive high concept, you know, dumb studio film coming through that, you know, they they can guarantee more bums on seats just because of the amount of marketing and advertising and everything out there for that film, they'll bump the small film for the big film often. And I just think it's a challenging environment for distributors and exhibitors. And so small films and especially foreign films really feel the brunt of that. And on VOD, people don't seem to find, the people find films, I know some people probably are able to mine that landscape very well, but I think that in general, it's sort of a alphabetical list for many people and it's it's hard to you know if you go between those lists that we have in in our digital devices and rotten tomatoes why isn't there something in between why why aren't there voices who are presenting the films to people why aren't there voices from the you know why isn't there a voice or voices from south by southwest every year that's that's really just you know letting the world know that there are films out there that they should see well, there, there are certain folders, you know, on certain services that are curatorial folders. Whether people know how to find those or not is another thing, I think. I mean, I expect... What are those, I, what, by folders, what do you like mean? I think there's the Sundance folder in, uh, is it in Netflix? I should, I should know, and I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I kind of haven't spent time exploring this myself. But I know... I know that there are, you know, and like Netflix will have Netflix originals as a way of distinguishing those films from the rest of the service, for example. Like, I do think that we're going to see, by necessity, because there's so much white noise and so many choices for consumers that are ultimately bamboozling and frustrating, I think, you're going to see more and more curatorial services, you know, inside those online platforms because people are going to need it you know they want to be guided they want to trust a label like Sundance they want to trust you know a certain brand you know um, of critical or whatever who, who says these are my favorite picks or whatever I think that I would be very surprised if we don't see more and more of that kind of curation going on on is, the online platforms is there a brand like that there is nothing like that now I mean there is no one place that you would say oh this is a go-to place where you can really find out what I, there is a platform called Mubi, M-U-B-I, and that was something that started in France and it's really sort of aimed at, you know, exposing the work of really interesting auteurs and, you know, fantastic foreign films, you know, amazing films from the past, you know, and kind of, you know, it's, it's like a cinema snob type site. So it's like um, fan, I, I have, I and, have Fandor. And yeah, I was just going to say Fandor is a yeah. similar thing that's American-based. But these two sites, I think, are strong curatorial platforms where, you know, you can futz about in there and really find some absolutely amazing stuff. So tell me about your clients. Like, who are your clients right now? 
Well, or still some, David, you know, who he made the rover after Animal Kingdom uh, with Rob Pattinson and Guy Pearce, and now he's making uh, War Machine for Netflix with, um, with Brad Pitt starring, which is really exciting. And he's worked in television as well. I mean, I, I work with a lot of clients, I should say, and they're all incredible. Some are at the beginning of their careers. Some are, you know, blossoming into these very big kind of star directors and, you know, but they're all fascinating to me. Let's see. I mean, I've had interesting journeys. I, I think that the journey with David is clear. You know, we started from his short films all the way through to now this movie with Brad Pitt, which is really fun. I work with a guy named James Ponsalt, who is an independent American auteur. I had been introduced to him by the Sundance, no, by Film Independent years ago after his first film called Off the Black, which very few people have seen, starring Nick Nolte, kind of got lost in a distribution meltdown. And I met James and just thought he was, you know, had one of the biggest brains I'd ever uh, been exposed to. And, and he was so authoritative about cinema. I mean, he really, really knew his stuff and was young and vibrant and impressive. So we started to working, working together and uh, he wrote Smashed, which I helped get financed and then sold to Sony Classics. He then fell in love with this script called The Spectacular Now. It was a great movie. Um, and he did End of the Tour as well. Yes, and that was another one that we financed independently, The Spectacular Now, with, uh, with Andrew Lauren. And really that was fun because like Shailene and, well Shailene had done Descendants, Shailene Woodley, but Miles Teller was still, you know, not the better known entity that he is now. So it was amazing that pairing of those two young actors with James was really wonderful. And then he did the end of the tour with Jason Segel. Uh, he's also, he, he directed the pilot for Master of None and uh, has done some other TV and he's He's got an awful lot going on now, which is uh, really exciting. He's, he's in post-production on The Circle now, which is um, Emma Watson and Tom Hanks' adaptation of a David Eggers book. So that's great. And, and you, you, you signed him off of Off the Black? Yeah. That was the first film mm -hmm. that he had done? So have to and then I, I work with this guy, Garth Davis, who had done commercials, actually, in Australia, and I really loved his commercials work, but I, it was a short film that he did that I saw that I really fell in love with. So. I signed him as soon as I became an agent, and with Kia actually, and he, the thing is with commercials directors, you know, they're so busy in commercials and making so much money that it's kind of hard to yank them out of that sometimes, and it took a long time for us to get rolling with Garth, but um, we ended up putting him in front of the producers of The King's Speech on sort of a, a meeting about another movie that didn't end up happening, but they loved him and introduced him to Jane Campion, and he went on to direct half of Top of the Lake the television series. It was a great, great series, yeah. great show. And they all had such a good experience that they immediately went on to make this movie uh, Lion together, which is coming out in Toronto this year. And I'm pretty excited about it because it's one of those undeniable true stories that I think will really capture. And it's called Lion? Lion, yeah. It'll really capture the imagination, I think. And what was it about a short film? I mean, was it? So it was an interesting one because there's a young producer in Australia who started this competition called POV, Jessica Brentnell. And what she would do is, is kind of give a bunch of talented young filmmakers the same piece of underlying material to work with and say, go and make your version of that short film. So one year she gave them a script that there were no characters attributed to lines. It was just line, 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 line. And you had to decide who said what and what the characters were and all that sort of stuff. 
This particular year, she gave them a short story. And it was a bizarre short story. It was like a writer with writer's block, you know, can't get his book out and his wife's pregnant at the time. And when she gets rushed to hospital, she gives birth to a book. And when they get home, there's an image of a baby in his computer. I mean, what do you do with that? So a number of filmmakers kind of tackled it. You know, Nash Edgerton made a horror film, you know, like other filmmakers did very different things. Garth did this incredibly moving drama about a family losing a baby. And it made me cry my eyes out. I was just so, the performances were incredible. It was so tender. It was so, so clever the way that they'd shaped this screenplay, him and this writer. And I just was like, wow, if you can turn that short story into this incredibly moving drama, like you're kind of brilliant. And it turned out he is. That's, that's great. <laughs> yeah. So, that's and then great. I, you know, I've, I, I work with, you know, Julius Avery, who I signed off the rough cut of a short, you know, who's now got a movie with J.J. Abrams and, you know, had a great, his first film was with Alicia Vikander and Ewan McGregor and, and Brenton Thwaites and Sold to Way 24 and so he's off and away and I, ha- you know, I work with a, a lot of filmmakers I started with early, early, early and that's, that's my passion I think. I just like working with people from the very beginning and building things from the ground up. And you're still looking at shorts? I mean, you still, yeah. how do you, where do you, you go to the short competitions at the festivals or people yeah. are constantly sending you how many films do you how many submissions do you get a week for oh, I get so many and I don't get to them all I try but you know I'm a firm believer that cream rises to the top and I, I find my way to the things that I'm meant to find my way to I mean sometimes I've just been too late to you know a movie and I've missed out on signing a really incredible filmmaker and that bums me out obviously I'm super competitive like every agent should be and I love being you know I mean, many of the filmmakers that I've mentioned to you today, I don't work with and this agency doesn't work with and I wish we did, but, you know, them's the breaks. And, and, but in my own, you know, I am, I am an avid lover of films and so when I go to a festival, I try to watch 20 films, you know. I, I do watch movies every week and, you know, I, I do seek out the opinion of friends that I've come to trust in the festival circuit, you know, who I know. Uh, foreign sales agents, like people like me who are watching movies, I come to know whose taste I jive with and we all share tips and that's how I find people and how they find me. And as far as the festivals, you mentioned the major festivals, Has have they have those festivals changed in, in, over the last five or ten years and, and have, are there, what's the next tier of festivals, is there a next tier of testival, festivals in your mind? that are worth going to or worth you know, following in some way? I mean, there's many fine festivals, you know, and I think they're, in a way it hasn't changed that much, you know. There's a little bit of jostling at the top, like who's the best, who's got the best films, who's getting the best filmmakers, but there's a little bit of movement, but it's, you know, I mean, the rise of Sundance has been really extraordinary, I think. That film is, that film festival is very, very important. And it started, it had very humble beginnings, so it's kind of cool, you know. I mean, the Cannes Film Festival is the biggest, swankiest film festival on the planet, and it kind of always has been, and, you know. You know, and I think, uh, you know, Berlin, Venice, you know, there, there can be press about, you know, oh, you know, it's not as relevant as it used to be, or, you know, it's, it's not the market it used to be, but the truth is they're still both very important festivals for establishing, you know, the finest filmmakers on the planet in any given year. And then there's films like film festivals, 
you know, some that I've been to, frankly, and some that I haven't, like, you know, Carla Viveri and Rotterdam and, and London and Rome and Zurich and, you know, those kinds of festivals. And obviously in the US, South by Southwest and Tribeca and, you know, like, you know, film festivals that aren't like, you know, necessarily the place that you're always going to choose to do your world premiere but you know if you have the choice I mean of those other festivals that I just mentioned which are the established A-list but still incredibly important festivals certainly in their own markets and you know yeah well worth going to if you have the time and as far as going back to that initial question about the next rise of the feature film or where the feature film is going in the near or far future, what do you think, in terms of the studios, I mean, in terms of, you know, what uh, Fox Searchlight might have been when it was established versus what it is now, and the A24s and, you know, the, 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 the rising indie companies, where is that whole landscape now? Where well, I, it's, it's actually interesting because, you know, when VOD came out, you know, obviously that was when people were starting to do day and date releases of movies, meaning that they're on online at the same time as they're in theaters. That was such a major disruptor. And I think that for a while there, it was all about star-driven films, which would do well on video platforms and so on and so forth. Now, I feel like there's been a real correction again, and there's a move back because there were so many films getting made and dumped on VOD. And consumers after a while were just like, ugh, too much and not, not enough of it's good so consumers were rejecting you know a lot of those movies and they're just not doing the business that they used to do I feel like there's now a move back to seeking out really strong theatrical titles that can actually burst through and play theatrically for the traditional window you know call it eight nine months and really establish themselves in the minds of consumers who so, you know a good chunk will go and see it at the theatre and if they don't, they'll certainly catch up with it later. And those those films, interestingly, you know, what seems to... You know, it's all about the director. Great films, it's not all about the director, obviously stellar writing and incredible performances and all of those things, but I think that from my perspective, cinema is primarily a, a director-driven medium. And so I think that there is a real focus on movies from great directors you know, mm. directors that are proven, directors that can deliver. So I think the future is, you know, really exceptional directors. And as far as the, you know, the web and people's fixation, the way people are using the internet and the, the draw to the internet for all kinds of communications and entertainment, the emphasis is being placed more and more on, on pictures, on images, you know, Instagram and, you know, Facebook, has it's, it uses Instagram and there's now video and hang live video on Facebook. So the audience is going to be have a heightened attunement to the film form in some way. Is that so? That that's I'm sort of reinforcing your point. The idea that a film that's well directed is going to be the most. It's going to be something that's very heightened visually. That's going to really use the film form. In a, in a very impactful way. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, I should add that it's not only about great directors, obviously the future of cinema, because it is about that, but it can also be about, you know, a concept, something that can break through into people's consciousness and really capture their imagination. So I think... Yeah, sto yeah I mean, story... Sto visual style sto is one thing. Like when, you know, when we saw 
uh, Snowpiercer. You know, it's just like, what is that? This train driving through the snow, like, you know, all these weird people trapped on the train, this dark aesthetic, like, you know, that, that is, that was like very odd and unsettling and like something that people had never seen before, you know? So I think, I think that, yeah, a visual aesthetic is, is definitely part of what can capture people's attention. And you know, I think that the, a director is a storyteller. So, you know, all the style in the world, all the visual impact in the world, sometimes it can, it can work and be fine, but if it, it is about the narrative, it is about the story and the character, so it yeah, has to be. Yeah, I think if you a, only have the visual style and you don't deliver on the rest, it's it's hard to hard to find that audience. Okay, and as far as as far as the making money in all this, how does how does that work for the independent film, the international independent filmmakers that are not say going and trying to do television or doing television or not sort of go, you know going and doing films, going and doing a a Marvel film. How it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, you know, it, until you get established as a, you know, very successful film practitioner, it can be really tough. And even then, you know, I've seen, you know, very fine directors with many awards, you know, and, and just incredibly impressive track records be forced to make movies for very little money, you know, for, for themselves, given that they often wrote the script and then have to direct it and then have to see it through to release. I mean, it's a good chunk of your life, you know? I mean, one of my friends likes to say that making a movie is like cutting off a limb and you only have so many. <laughs> and I think it's sort of true, you know? It's, it's, it's like, you know, sometimes I remember somebody coming to me once and saying, oh, I, you know, I have an opportunity to be a production manager on, on Hawaii Five-0, uh, or I can pursue my projects as an independent producer. And I'm, I don't know what to do. And I said, if you're even asking yourself that question, you should go and be a production designer on Hawaii Five-0 because it's so hard. You have to love it so much that you have a compulsion to do nothing else. You know, I really feel that way. I think that it is incredibly challenging, but clearly if you do well, you know, you can make a lot of money and the rewards can be really great. But for those toiling in independent film again and again and again and like never going to much bigger canvas movies, it's, it's you know, it, it's financially challenging, I would say. Can a DIY filmmaker survive if they retain, you know, if they make very small films and, you know, raise the money through, you know, Seed and Spark or, you know, Kickstarter? and then distribute it simply or you know self-distribute or distribute through a you know get a, a low-tier distribution deal with sony classics or one of these you know or a24 one of these places is that a, is that a can someone have can, a practice like that and plenty of people do you just have to adjust your lifestyle depends what you're willing to get by on and so you're going to Venice next? No, I'm going to Telluride. Telluride. I have a client with a film there called Una, which is a uh, feature debut of a brilliant theater director named Benedict Andrews. And Rooney Mara is starring with Ben Mendelsohn. And I could not be more excited about that. He's, he's really uh, impressive. Theater director in, in Britain? He originally was from Australia and then moved to Europe and worked a lot in Berlin and worked a lot in London and has directed on Broadway. He did The Maids on Broadway with Kate Blanchett and Isabelle Huppert and also uh, Streetcar Named Desire with Ben Foster and Gillian Anderson. So 
He's been working at a very high level in the theatre world, and now this is his feature debut. So that's exciting. Mm -hmm. So you're going there for the whole. You're gonna, when you go to that festival, what are you going to do? You're going to go see all the try to see as many films as possible. Yep. And then from there, you're that's Toronto. Then it's pretty much straight to Toronto. Mm -hmm. And then and then we're selling six films there, so we'll sell the distribution rights either for the U.S. or maybe as much as the world uh, for six of the movies that we helped put together as an agency. And then, um, you know, also there with Lion actually is premiering there, which is very exciting. And Una will be there too. And uh, Adam Leon's film Tramps, which I couldn't be more excited to see because I love that film and I think audiences will too. Adam won South by Southwest with his first film and then played it in certain regard and 12 directors, 12 films, so he's definitely a filmmaker on the radar of a lot of cinema snobs. He's great. Well, that's that sounds great. That's exciting. We'll yeah. look forward to seeing all these films. Good. It's, it's a good, I asked for a list of films that I should see and you've given me a, <laughs> a feast of films here good. that you're involved with that I want to watch. Yeah. Any other, any parting thoughts? Any, any, what else could you say about the world of filmmaking today for you know for for young filmmakers for young screenwriters trying to you know make their way in this i think uh be tough on yourself good isn't good enough it has to be excellent and ask yourself whether anyone's going to care <laughs> i mean i i i hate to sound uh and my clients will be the first to tell you that I'm this kind of <laughs> hypercritical soul, unfortunately. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm tough on myself and I'm tough on, on everyone I'm close to because I think you have to have rigor in the work, you know? You really have to have a very rigorous approach to, to what you're doing because it's so hard to get established. It's so hard to be um, self-supporting. It's so hard to get attention and it's so hard to reach an audience. And if you're gonna do it, like, just go for broke, you know? Really, really try and make something incredibly special and memorable because you're gonna rope in the, the efforts and energy and, and work of so many people. You're gonna use the money of a lot of investors. Like, just make it worth telling and make it incredible. So when your clients show you a script and say, I'm ready, let's go out and sell it, you'll, you'll put your development hat on and work, work them a little bit if you feel like they haven't, if they missed in some way? Sometimes. And you have to find, I mean, it's sort of like, it, you I mean, work. you know, I, it depends too on, it really depends on the client and what role they wish me to play. You know, not every client wants my opinion and so I don't always give it. But if they ask and they seem to genuinely want it, I'll give it and you know, sometimes I'm just like, this is incredible, let's go get it made. <laughs> and other times I'll just have thoughts, you know, to like how to, how to get it over the top. And by the way, I could be right, I could not be right. I'm just another person with an opinion, you know. <laughs> well, so. that's, you're doing your job. That's the best thing. It's, just, it's great to, to hear that. All right, Beck. Thank you so much. Thank this is you. highly informative, and uh, I we really appreciate you sitting down with us and, and having welcome. this conversation. Good luck with all your podcasts. Thank you. Okay. Bye. And that's it for now. If you would like a PDF transcript of today's show or want to check out our schedule, you can get it all and more at theprocess.ink. 
And of course, we're on iTunes and all those other good places. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Benedict.